live from the Fremont Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. What causes an earnest spiritual seeker to become an atheist? When I first heard about Sparky's cancer, I took it really hard. I had just come off the heels of shepherding my dear coworker through his lost battle with lung cancer, and the scream that was just caught in my throat was, why, God, why? Why do you keep taking out the bright lights in this world when people like Dick Cheney get to live forever? <laughs> I had always been really, really spiritual. For as long as I could remember, God was the thing that mattered most to me. I'd also always been super, super sensitive. Not just sensitive in that way of, I get my feelings hurt easily and I take things hard, but also just really empathic and conscientious to the suffering in the world. And I think this is because I was born crippled. When, among other things, I had a club foot. So when I came out of the womb, I was facing this way and my left foot was turned around facing the other direction. Kind of like it, maybe it wanted to crawl right back in. Which is fitting because for most of my life I felt like I wished I'd never been born. What happened is the doctors cast both my legs and because I was a growing baby, every week they would saw off the cast and recast them. And I am told that the sound of that saw terrified me as an infant. And I would scream and my face would turn red and I would cry and the flail on the table and the nurses would hold me down while they sawed off the cast and recast them week after week for the first 18 months of my life. This was my introduction to life on planet Earth. <laughs> my nervous system never developed an ability to feel safe on its own. And that's probably why I've been so spiritual all my life. I mean, this physical reality has sucked. So the idea that there's an etheric realm that, that makes more sense and makes it meaningful is incredibly seductive. So much so that in my 20s, I entered a spiritual transformation program and that's where I met Sparky. I entered it on the heels of having overdosed on heroin. For the better part of a year, I'd been filling my arms with narcotics as a way to not feel the pain of being alive. I was definitely the most extreme case entering this program. <laughs> most people were there because they wanted to manifest more abundance in their life or <laughs> work on their marriage. I showed up head to toe, decked out in black, rings on every finger, piercings, jet black hair, strung out as fuck. But I gotta tell you, within two years of that program, I was wearing every color of the rainbow. <laughs> the people I met there, they became my soul family. The program was based on these principles that love is the only thing that's real. Everything that's not love is fear. And we would, it was also based on this sense of interconnectedness, that we are all one. So anything I do to someone else, I'm just doing to a part of myself. So we had these practices like um, turning our relationships over to the Holy Spirit, which meant that if we had conflict with one another, we worked it out until we got back to the love. And we owned our judgments, which meant that if I had a judgment about somebody in the program, we'd sit and dialogue it out until we realized, oh, that's just something about me I haven't dealt with yet. And this created for me an incredible sense of safety in relationship for the first time ever, and it meant the world to me. 
there was sort of this built-in self-accountability to the program, and I truly felt like we all held each other, and we would do anything for one another, and that this would last our lifetimes because we were so close. Like everything comes to an end, the program itself ended, and the building closed its doors, and the founders moved out of the Midwest, and I myself moved to the country to get out of the frenzy of the city. But even in the 10 years I was in the country, I held that community so deep in my heart. And I'd go back and visit and for parties and, and birthdays, and we'd have a great time. So I had been living in the country for 10 years. I'd been working with a new spiritual teacher for about six years at this point when I heard about Sparky's cancer. And in that spirit of interconnectedness and oneness, I kind of took his journey on as my own. And I was sort of encouraged to do this by my spiritual teacher to take on Sparky's karma. We were taking on world karma. <laughs> How noble. So I was driving back and forth and bringing carloads of organic food to Sparky and his family and giving body work to Sparky and, and, and in anyone in the community that was stressed out. I ended up starting dating one of Sparky's caregivers. Now, this guy hadn't been in the spiritual transformation program, and he told me, you know, this community that you esteem so highly, they ain't all that. He's like, they aren't really showing up for Sparky in his time of need, and this was very disconcerting to me. But nonetheless, I thought, well, you know, even if things have fallen off a little bit, I know we, we were so close and we had something so beautiful. It's just going to take a little nudging to get it back. I know everyone wants it back. And so I spent three hours a day in prayer, naming the names of everyone in the community and Sparky and his care team and his family. And eventually I decided just to move back to the city. I mean, for three reasons. Number one, I had been pining for this community for a decade. Why not just go back there? Number two, I was dating this guy, and it was problematic, to put it mildly, but he swore that all the problems were due to it being long distance, and he really needed me there. And number three, I thought I would volunteer to be on Sparky's care, game over, care team over the weekends after my work was done. So I gathered all my belongings and made the move back to the city, and... When I got there, it was like a soldier returning from war. The entire landscape had changed. The uh, these linking that we had had socially as, as a strong network seemed to be replaced by this ranking of how do you rate? Are you an artist? What drugs do you do? Are you cool? We had we had used to value spiritual integrity and having a clear conscience, and that seemed to be replaced by having a cool Burning Man costume. <laughs> the authenticity of these relationships that I valued so deeply seemed to be replaced by the good time party vibe. And I did not know how to handle this. I mean, it dawned on me gradually and suddenly. The other thing that happened when I moved back was <laughs> I found out that the boyfriend, um, his bad behavior wasn't due to the long-distance relationship. <laughs> this was a deeply disturbed man that I should never have given my heart over to, despite the encouragement of friends and my spiritual teacher. And the third thing that happened was I was informed by the boyfriend that Sparky had chosen to give up the fight. Now, here in Oregon, we have death with dignity laws. We didn't have those in that state. 
there was a brunch held at Sparky's house in which he called everyone, one by one, to his bedside to tell them of his plan. Now, I already knew his plan because I'd learned from the boyfriend who had told a bunch of other people too. So I had a speech prepared. And I told Sparky not to do it. I told him to reconsider his plan. And I did this because, number one, the spiritual teachings that I was devoted to told me that if we off ourselves, we sign up for an eternity of suffering. And I wanted to save Sparky from that. And number two, maybe even more important, he was the only one in the community left still practicing spiritual principles. I mean, God had never stopped being important to me. And when you're on your deathbed, you think about God a lot. He was the only member still behaving like we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I didn't want to lose my only comrade that was left. Nevertheless, Sparky told me that he knew what he was doing. And so I said, at the very least, can I tell Melissa? Melissa had done the spiritual transformation program with us. She wasn't there at the brunch. And he said, yes, you can tell Melissa I will be making a public announcement in two days. So I drove to Melissa's and I told her, and she was really upset. And after I left, she got on the phone and called some friends for emotional support. And one of the friends she called got in her car and drove straight over to Sparky's and got in his face about what he was about to do. That night, when I came home, after breaking up with the boyfriend, there were a series of vitriolic emails from Sparky on my computer. And granted, he couldn't speak, he couldn't type. This was done through iGaze software. They said that it was a mistake to ever tell me. They said, how dare you treat my life and death like town gossip. And I just started shaking. And I dropped to my knees and I started praying. And I got up and I typed back and I pleaded with him, no, 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 Sparky, the only mistake would be thinking that people love you deeply. That's why they are having such strong reactions. I tried to remind him that the boyfriend told a bunch of people without his permission. Sparky would have none of it. In some days, his wife sent out an invitation to the people in the community to gather at his house and sing him to the other side as they took him off the life supports. It was the first and the last time that so closely mirrored our experience in that spiritual community of, of unity and reverence. I am told it was beautiful. There were two people that were banned from attending, myself and Melissa. To this day, I still have a lot of unresolved grief around Sparky's death. I called my spiritual teacher, I did a lot of praying, and I started to question the guidance of my spiritual teacher. I asked him, why did you tell me to stay with this messed up boyfriend? Why did you tell me to take such a strong stand against the darkness? As I questioned, he became more and more abusive until finally he cut me off and refused to see me anymore. After six years of devoted discipleship and pretty much severe dependency, so in this condition, I was really in no state to be my own advocate, but nobody was standing up for me. So I started to reach out to members of the community to try to find an advocate and a friend. I would buy people dinner and share the experience of the events with them to try to make sense of them. 
I would meet for coffee and was met with, seriously, you guys, the most bizarre sociopathic lack of empathy from these people. I mean, it's insane. Some responses were really shaming, like, how dare you make this about you and your pain? You are being such a victim. Some responses were invalidating and, and defending the people who had betrayed and scapegoated me. Some responses were minimizing. Bad things happen to everybody, just move on, get over it. But most of the responses were just actively ghosting me. I called one of the dear friends of 15 years and asked him, sobbing, what happened to our friendship? And his response was, we haven't had an active and engaged friendship in some time, and I just don't want to get involved. In other words, not my circus, not my monkeys. I had just wanted someone to be present with me. I had just wanted to be heard and seen. And I didn't receive this from anyone, and I realized I hadn't given that to Sparky. When he shared with me his plan that he was choosing to die, I didn't meet him there. I told him to change his mind. I had no relationship with my own desire to die. Sure, I had spiritually bypassed it because, oh, if we were to do that, God would be mad. But I had never really had a conscious sense of my own despair and pain and, and sat with myself and been present with that. How could I possibly be present with Sparky? Yet this is all I've wanted since my life broke. I mean, during, after those events, I started to have night terrors, stopped sleeping, panic attacks. I have wanted people that were involved in that scene in my former community to just hear and understand what it's been like for me. And they haven't been able to, and I've really racked my brain, why? What the hell is going on? And I've come to the conclusion that I think when it comes to really deep woundedness, we just, we just don't operate on the, I'll show you mine and you can show me yours. We operate on the, don't fucking show me that. I have wounds of my own, half the size of yours, that I've had to bury. I have had to abandon parts of myself. Do not ask me to stick around and stay for you in your pain. And in my newfound atheism, I have decided that I think that is what passes for evil in this world. This disconnection from our own woundedness, whether it's because our lives got so comfy that we didn't have to look at that anymore and it could affect the people around us but not us, or whether it's because those wounds were so big that we had to completely cut ourselves off from them and become a fucking spiritual teacher. <laughs> the corollary of all this is that I have come to a new definition of God, if there is one, and that would be simply being fully present with ourselves and with each other. <laughs>